What is our role as followers of Jesus? And I think for us, our, our, our responsibility is to, to take it to the throne, to take it to Jesus, to pray. And I'm going to lead us in prayer, um, you know, just praying for, you know, the widow of Dan Roca, you know, because her husband was on duty defending and protecting our family, our community, our children. She doesn't have a husband. These boys don't have a father. And, you know, that just crushes me, crushes me. Um, And the thing we can do is just pray over them that God um, would press into them and those that are on duty every day because are reminded, reminded that there is no such thing as a routine call. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me if you would. I'd like just to pray. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And as your children, uh, full of faith, there's moments that I really don't even know what to pray. So I just ask that in a way that only you know that you would touch this widow's heart, that she would know as she walks out probably the greatest grief in her life, that she would know that she's not alone, that you are with her, that you comfort her, that you love her, and those boys understand that you haven't forsaken them, you're with them. To our officers, who got a sobering reminder of what the cost could be for protecting our community and our families. So God, I just pray that you would comfort them. And God, I'd ask that you might use this in a season that our community is known just um, anger, division, fighting, that this tragedy you could use for your glory and your good and you would draw us together to remind us to love one another as you have loved us. And I pray for each one of us here that we will be poised and ready in action, in word and deed to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because this world sometimes just makes no sense. But Jesus, you make perfect sense. And I just pray in your power and your name over this entire situation. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Good, I appreciate that. Thank you, have a seat. Well, you know me. Um, I'm always pretty excited. I'm just a little extra excited today. And that is for this reason, that I get the privilege to bring the message with Peggy Gray today. Um, uh, Peggy, um, I've known her since I've worked here. Um, she is an incredible uh, mind and heart for Jesus. Uh, she serves on our teaching team. Uh, and just to give you a little bit, if you don't know how our teaching team works, there's a group of us that I lead um, that we meet every Monday. Right? And we go over the past message. Uh, we look at the message coming up, the next two messages. Um, I go before the Lord and pray and uh, develop the series. And then I bring it to this team and we walk it out. Some of those on the teaching team, uh, you will know they preach here. 
not all the teaching team members, because we believe wholeheartedly that we want to bring uh, and handle well and rightly divide the word of truth, God's word. Okay? And so uh, we, I take that very, very seriously. And, and Peggy, uh, is I met her when I was doing the curriculum team years ago, and, and I know she's not going to like this, um, but, it, but it's true. Um, in my life, she probably ranks in the top three in her biblical knowledge. Uh, this person knows the word. And, and how I tell, not just the information and the data, but someone that lets it overflow in their life. She has a heart for Jesus. Uh, you know, she has a master's degree in biblical studies. She's taught in this region of Bible study fellowship. She's on our curriculum team. She's part of our biblical foundations. Um, she brings the word of God. So you can tell I'm a little tickled that I get to share the message with her. So I'm excited about this. So I got to shut up. Um, so Peggy, I'm excited for this, okay? Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are going to continue our series in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. And our series is called The Worthy Walk, taken out of Ephesians 4.1. And we're going to kind of just take off from where Damien uh, took us last week and answer this question, how do you have a worthy walk? How do we do this? Ephesians 5.18 says this, how you do it is by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is when Jesus does his work in our heart and our lives. And then the promised Holy Spirit comes in and we surrender control to the Holy Spirit that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what it says in Ephesians 5, verses 19, 20, and 21 is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it begins to overflow into areas of your life. It overflows in worship from your heart, verse 19 says. It overflows Verse 20 says, uh, in thankfulness always and for everything, it says. And then verse 20 says, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it overflows in submission to one another. And today that is going to launch us into our topic. Our topic is on marriage. And we're going to look at how can the Holy Spirit empower us to walk out a godly marriage. So I'm gonna pray, we're gonna read uh, Ephesians 5. Um, I'm gonna start in verse uh, 21, but let's pray. Father God, we wanna receive your word. We want your word to come in, deeply come into and touch us right where we're at. I pray for each and every person here that they'd be transformed and changed by the power of your word today, that they would not leave this place the same way they came because they had an encounter with you and your word and they allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them. So we surrender to you. Have your way. Teach us, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 21. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I'm going to ask Peggy to come in and just start us off here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So having just listened to that scripture, which is beautiful, we have to admit that it's also confusing. It is sometimes frustrating. Um, It's important. And it's encouraging. When uh, we're looking at this letter from Paul to the Ephesians, and this is an ancient document that is set in an ancient culture. And one of my professors was known for saying that every time that you come to the Bible, you want to come to it with your knowledge. You want to read it as if it's the most familiar thing and the most warm and cozy book that you own. But you also need to come to it as if you've never read it before, as if you're looking at it for the very first time. Because we have to be available for God to teach us every time we come to his word. So I'm inviting you to join Scott and I as we re-examine this passage for the very first time, okay? We're going to take it from that, that standpoint. We're going to be looking at it through the lenses of culture, creation, and through Jesus Christ. I mentioned that we're talking to the Ephesian church, obviously. We've been there, we're in the book of Ephesians. Ephesus was part of an ancient Near East culture. It was the Roman Empire, and all of those ancient cultures were patriarchal, and they had defined domestic codes that were actually written, and they governed how households were going to be run. And the patriarch of the household had um, absolute authority over those that were under within his house, within his household. That meant wives, children, slaves. Um, he had the right, he owned everything, he owned them and all of their property, and he even had the right of life or death in some circumstances. During the time that Paul was writing this, Rome was a little bit more relaxed. There were a, there's record of a few rare occurrences where widows or wealthy single women owned businesses, but by and large, women didn't get to learn how to read. So of course, nothing was written that gives us the inside view of what the woman's perspective was. They didn't write the rules. They didn't run for office. They couldn't be part of politics. And so they had very little influence. Now, in kind of in the middle of this, salted in the middle of the Roman Empire, now we have Judaism. And the, the Jews were the radical feminists of the ancient Near East because thanks to the Mosaic law, the domestic codes had been modified and wives, children, and slaves all were given rights and protections. It was still patriarchal, but, there, but it was a little less rigid and a little less dangerous for the family. 
Well, Paul brings this teaching. He's, go, he's speaking directly into the domestic codes. We get the wives and husbands this week, and then we're going to be moving into chapter six where we get into children and slaves. But um, he's speaking into it, and he doesn't frame it either under the current culture or his Judaic background. He blows the whole thing up, and he looks at it he brings everybody to common ground and looks at it from the position of Christ, and that is a position of submission. Verse 521 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is a command to the entire church. We are all supposed to submit to one another. Well, the idea that we need to submit to one another is the most important principle undergirding every relationship that a believer has. Philippians 2, verses, starting verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Submission is a term that describes the act of aligning yourself under another, lining oneself under another. And I will be the first to agree that when I am told to submit, there is something visceral that rises up in me in opposition to this. And I can't say whether that's because of wrong teaching or experience, but I think it actually just comes down to my flesh, that I, that's not what I want. Um, but this negative connotation is not where things began. That's not how it started. We have to go back to creation to discover how things were supposed to be originally as it's described in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is a beautiful creation hymn broken up in stanzas that are called days and it gives us the creative order, how things unfolded. And it's, humanity pops up in the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Okay, things we can observe from this first chunk on creation. Both male and female have dominion. Both were blessed. The word bless is one that we just kind of toss around a lot. Bless this, oh, God, you know, bless, bless you, you sneezed, God bless you. Um, ble to bless means to have fullness of life. God's perfect fulfillment of your life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Both of the man and woman together were image bearers of God. They were created in his image. God is a plurality in unity. He said, let us make man in our image. Humanity is a plurality in unity. Male and female, he created them. The three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are intrinsically equal, while they also have distinct, different ways of serving their joint creation. Equal, but not identical. You know, if you want to unpack more about that in the New Testament, go to John chapter 16 and 17. It's beautiful. Galatians 3.28 says that male and female are equal, but not identical. 
When we look at Genesis chapter two, we see that complementary account of creation, not with the, with the order of things arriving, but as they are introduced as they relate to man. And so we see the, um, the purpose of mankind being revealed and the gender distinctions are put in place. The Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Earlier in that account, we saw that the man was in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. He named the animals, and um, to, he was a protector of the garden, and he was a servant of God's creation. He needed a helper, a helper fitted, corresponding, a counterpart, a good match, perfect match. The woman was created from the original flesh that was made in the image of God, the same source material. God made a few improvements. Um, <laughs> mod modifications? Both are image bearers of God, as are you and I, okay? Because we are descended from them. So what is a helper? We have to go to other scripture. Sorry, we have to go to other scripture to, to. We use scripture to interpret scripture. So we go to other scripture to find out what else is said about helpers in the Bible. As Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples, he said, "When I leave, I will send you the Helper, and he will be with you all the time." So the Helper that Jesus sent was the Holy Spirit, one of the Trinity, one of the Godhead. So we know from looking at that that there is no sense of dominance or superiority in the role of servant to helper. Everything at creation was good. Paul quoted Genesis 2.24, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He quoted that as an illustration for both marriage and of the church. He said that Jesus is the head of the church, his body, his flesh, also his bride. Well, we have to look at what Jesus did for his church. He loved her and he gave himself up for her. We want to look at this passage as a whole. Scott read the whole thing, and so when we read the part about the wife, we also have to have the husband's role in mind. Wives are to align themselves under their husbands because this replicates the response of the church to Jesus Christ. We see this through the lens of creation, not through contemporary culture. The husband is the head of the wife. That doesn't mean his role is easier. I am his helper. My role is to help him fulfill his purpose as a believer, which includes his role as my husband. Helper, this is not a Holy Spirit. This is not a proof text for nagging. Um, you know, if I'm the Holy Spirit, I ought to be able to tell my husband everything he needs to know about what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Um, look at the book of Proverbs. It's very clear that nagging is not okay. Solomon would know he had not 1,000 wives, 300 wives, 700 concubines. Okay. Um, 
this thing about us submitting to my husband, it's more often about attitude than it is about action. And so when we look at Philippians 2.2, I love the way it said in the, in the numerics and standard, it says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. We are intended in our marriages to be living, breathing examples of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Okay, so why is this so hard? Why is it hard to receive? Why is it hard to accept? Why is it hard to do? Because my husband isn't God, <laughs> okay? He's not perfect and neither am I. The whole idea of submission tells me that I need to become vulnerable. And there's this fear in me that I'm going to be exploited by this other imperfect human being. Mutual submission in marriage and among believers is a good feature of creation, but it was severely damaged at the fall, which is described in Genesis chapter three. The fall ruptured the one flesh relationship that was created by God. The fall happened because the man and the woman both believed and acted upon a selfish lie. You'll each be like God. The belief in that lie led to a power grab. That mutual submission, that one flesh relationship was broken into two self-centered, self-serving individuals. This is bad news. But we don't live in context of that. We live in context of the good news. And just like Jesus Christ mends and redeems the broken relationship between me and my Father God, he redeems this relationship as well. My relationship, my fallen relationship, finds redemption at the cross of Jesus Christ. So we look to Christ. In Ephesians 5, Verses one and two, it said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for, for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So I've been told to submit. I've been told to imitate Christ. So I have to look and see in scripture where I find examples of Christ submitting. We're coming up on Easter. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and he got down and he washed their feet. And he said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I love that some marriage ceremonies incorporate this. In Gethsemane, later that same night, he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew 20, 28 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And back to Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of all creation, my Lord, is a Lord who models submission. Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the will of his Father and then to his killers. I lay down my life willingly, no one takes it from me. He became vulnerable 
it was lonely, and he was exploited. Submission must be voluntary. It is vulnerable. It often feels lonely. What is it that we're being asked to do? Let's read it again with fresh eyes. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So I wanna do a quick review. Jesus is the head, the savior of the church. He is my head. The church is submitted to Christ. I am submitted to Jesus. He submitted and gave himself up for me. He loves me. I am supposed to imitate him. Submission means that I consider the needs of my husband, who hopefully, in, in, in your case as well, is my brother in Christ and my friend. I help him to become, I, I make his needs more important than my own. Submitting means that I will do what I can to help my husband fulfill the role that Christ has purposed for him, to help him become that, and I will bless him. My obedience in setting aside my will is ultimately obedience to Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. And there goes vulnerability. Submission from wife to husband is only done through faith in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to submit in everything? Well, we need to talk a little bit about what this text is not saying. It is not a proof text for male dominance or authoritarian rule in the home, certainly not for abuse. Those things are sin, and we don't foster sin in the people that we love. In everything is not a proof text for husbands getting his way all the time. Let's not talk paint color. Um, <laughs> husbands are also under the instruction of this passage and under Philippians, the passage in Philippians 2. So nobody gets a pass to be selfish in, in the marriage relationship. When we look at the whole passage, it ended with verse 33, which says, wives, respect your husbands. So in everything means in every arena of my life, at all times, I am always married. When I'm in public, and if I, I know girls, you've had that experience where you're with a bunch of other women or they're around, and suddenly it seems like there's this cascading exchange of, of husband bashing going on. That's not okay. That's not respect. In private, when we are sorting things out as a couple, I respect and don't fight dirty. Am I getting nosy enough <laughs> getting into your business? As the example that I set for my children and now my grandchildren, I pose a position of respect for, and not that it is a pose, I model respect for my husband. Submitting does not describe a situation where married women are sidelined from exercising their spiritual gifts, some of which are for leadership exercising them both in the home and in the faith community. I'm a leader. I'm even a spiritual leader, but Roger is my head. God gave me gifts and a brain for developing them so that I can bless my husband and I can function in the body of Christ. And he is very supportive of my doing that. Well, what does it actually look like? What are the details? It's going to look different in your house than it 
is in mind. Paul intentionally did not give us specifics. We have to pray that through. This is not a command that comes with a guarantee. It doesn't say that if you do this, if you always mutually submit, you're going to have a marriage of sunshine and roses. We are still fallen people in a fallen world and things are sometimes going to be pretty hard. I talked to Roger about it because of course, this is also not a text that removes dialogue. And I said, you know, I really don't see this being a big deal in our relationship. I never even really think about it anymore. And his response was, your role is between you and God. I've got enough to sort out in my own role. I don't have problems. So wives are to align themselves under their husbands because this replicates the response of the church to Christ. Husbands are to align themselves under their wives by loving them selflessly, illustrating Christ's love for his church. And now that's Scott's turn to try to explain that one. So. <laughs> Come on. so. I told you, I told you. Uh, I probably should just close in prayer right now is what I should do, right? So, um, so uh, you, you get the uh, second half, here you go. Um, great job, Peggy, thank you. So Paul continues in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. You have to understand that this phrase is absolutely a nuclear bomb in the cultural. I mean, because as Peggy already stated, um, Paul was writing into a culture that women were property. That you would get married for social status and personal wealth gain and increase. Right? You would be married and uh, the, um, your wife-to-be's family would give you a dowry. And you would get animals and land and money and all this stuff. And you would build up your household, your wealth. And then she might give you kids, hopefully boys, right, to grow your wealth. The Jewish rabbis had a prayer during this time, a daily prayer. And one of the lines in that was, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. What they're recognizing there is these are the bottom of society, just property. Thank you that you didn't make me that. It was a man's world. But God said, no, no. This is my world. This is my world. And these wives are not your property. They're mine. I created them. Right, Genesis. In fact, I created them and I I made them in my own image. They look like me. They are mine, not yours. You've been entrusted to love them, but not just any love, agape love. The kind of love that God gives us through Jesus to us, unconditional love. He's saying, I entrust you with my daughter, to love her like I would. Husbands out there, men, how many of you have ever um, given your daughter away uh, to some young man for marriage? I've had someone take you and say, can I marry her? You sit up there, you get before everybody and say, who gives her away? I do, that whole thing. I tell you what, I can understand God's heart. You know, I have two daughters, both of them are married. And my 
deepest desire. You know, young man, I want you to love her like I love her. Any comments there? I'll move on. Um, But here's the deal. That's what God is saying to us as husbands. Husbands, love your wives. I don't care about this culture. That's not what I call. I call you to something radical. Husbands, we're called to agape our wives. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, what we have to do is have a a, a picture of of what this husband-wife relationship is supposed to be. And as Peggy did, you've got to go back to creation to get this picture because it was lost and Paul is correcting something here. Okay, the picture of the husband-wife relationship, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 18, um, it says this, uh, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Women, amen. Uh, uh, I'll make him a suitable helper, a helper fit for him. That word helper in the Hebrew language, the original language there, is ezer. And what ezer means, it means a few different things. Um, It means companion, partner. A helper, someone to come alongside you for the task that you have. Let me ask you a question. When you need help, who do you call? Who do you call? Do you call somebody who knows less than you? Who's less skilled? Has less insight than you? No. You call somebody who knows more than you. Who has a strength that you don't have. That's what God, he gave us a helper. Because husbands, he saw fit to say, I've got something for you. I've got a mission for you. And you can't fulfill it on your own. And so I'm going to give you a helper. Now, this is a shout out to singles, okay? If you're single here, remember the guy writing this is single. So do not let us romanticize marriage as the ultimate place, institution to go to. Now, Paul says something very different. You know, that it's better not to marry because it's going to be difficult, right? <laughs> and some of you I have a mission for that you can't fulfill on your own. So I'm going to pour into you. I'm going to provide a gift for you, a helper, a companion, an ezer. You single? Say, I got this, <laughs> right? God, God says, you're good. But ezer also means this. There's a military element to this word. It's used 21 times in the Old Testament. Two times it's a reference to a wife once to a prince. 18 times it is a descriptor of God's relationship to us. Right? A little different picture, right? And it's a a descriptor of how he comes alongside us in battle. Our protector, our shield, our sword. That's an Ezra. See, your wife is a warrior that God has brought alongside you shoulder to shoulder to do battle in this life. Like there's something coming up and you need someone with you, alongside you to fight. And here she is, your Ezra. 
And I tell you, when I was uh, studying this this past week, uh, man, I just had to stop before the Lord. I've taught this subject a lot, um, but brought into this aspect of the Hebrew word, um, it was the first time. And it so defined my relationship with my wife. We've been married for 33 years, pretty soon here in a couple of months. Um, five years together before that. 38 years of my life, and I'm only 39. Is that crazy? No. <laughs> for 38 years of my life, uh, she's been at my side doing battle. You know, just, I kid you not, man. I was, just, I was just broken and thankful before the Lord at this warrior that was alongside me. You know, because we had to dig ourselves out of a ditch that was our lives um, as kids. Uh, Jesus came and sought us out and we became Christians and no one else in our family was Christians. And she was at my side battling in this new walk with Jesus. You know? And then full-time ministry and we had kids, right? Grandkids. Every step of the way, he gave me an Ezer, a warrior to do battle with me. That's the picture that we have to remember and that Paul is painting of the husband-wife relationship. Far different than what our culture does with it, right? Inside and out of the church. Together. Uh, Ezra. There's another Hebrew word used. Um, it's pronounced aloof, but don't let the English get you. It's spelled A-L-L-U-P. Okay? And what aloof means is it means an intimate companion, a deep friend, a best friend, a best friend. So if you want to say, well, how should I look at my wife? You look at her like your best friend. That's what scripture calls Proverbs 2.17, Song of Songs 5.17. She is our aloof, our best friend. Jesus calls us, John 15.13, his friend, Right? His church, us, we're his friend. Think about your best friend in the world. If you have to go back to childhood, think about the qualities of that relationship and what it looked like. Man, always there for you, right? Always there. It's the person that you could share your deepest, darkest secrets, uh, your, your fears, your doubts, everything you could share with this person. They know your, your highs and the things you, you're succeeding, but they know your lows too, and they stick with you. They know you better than anybody else. Thinking of my wife, um, she knows me like nobody else knows me. I can walk in a room, and if I've had a bad day, I mean, you guys all know this, you try to fake it, right? So you walk in like, hi, you know, and she just, boom, what's wrong? Like, uh, nothing. Or she'll say something that kind of gets me a little bit and I try to hold steady. You ever done that? Where they tick you off and you're like, okay, don't even show any emotion right now. She goes, I saw that. <laughs> what are you thinking? Like, no. Uh, but it is, they, they know you, this friend. Know you better than anybody else and that is what your wife is. And listen to this, husbands. You will spend most of your time in your marriage relationship in this space, in Friendship. And where that friendship is healthy and good, it overflows in every aspect of your life. All the other unique elements to the marriage relationship. But it will start and live most of its life in friendship. So you fight for it, okay? Fight for it because friendship is key. So that's the picture of what this relationship 
is how do we do it? How do we love like Christ? So if you're looking at verses 25, it's, you know, it starts out with that great call. Husbands, love your wives. It says this. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right, here's the deal this, okay? So as we look at Christ and loving like Christ, there's three things I want to point out to you. First of this, this love is a sacrificial love. Then it's a sanctifying love. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then ultimately, it's a satisfying love. So you look at verse 25. It is as Christ loved the church. Jesus is how we're to love. And it says he gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. See, verse 23, if you go back a little higher, it calls us husbands to be the head of the wife. We are to be the leaders in our home, to lead our home. It's interesting. Did you just feel that? Because our world has tainted the word leadership. Oh, we think we hear that. It's the boss. It's the head cheese, the one in charge. Our tradition has made the husband uh, the armchair king in the home. And nothing can be further from Scripture. Right? He says we're going to love. You have to be sacrificed. But we are called to love like Christ. And, and, and that is this new kind of leadership seen in Jesus. And it's a spirit-filled servant leadership. That is what we are called to do to deny ourselves like we see Jesus to serve our wife, our bride. A great picture of that uh, is in Jesus' life all through it, but a real point in time you see it so clear and the level that he'll go to sacrifice and serve his bride, us, is the night that he was arrested and ultimately crucified for us. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of you know where I'm going with this. And he knew what was coming, that he would go to this cross and experience the worst kind of death you could on this earth. He'd be tortured for his bride. And he cried out to God. It says he stumbled and fell in anguish. We got this image of him sweating blood to take this cup. <laughs> I don't want to do this. This is hard. This is tough. He says, but not my will be done. Yours. He says, I will serve her. If this is how it has to be, I will serve my bride. Husbands, when is the last time you cried out before God? Say, at my own expense, God, show me how to serve her. Is that the dialogue that most of us have? No. We go back to the armchair king. What can I get? I'm in charge. This is what I'm thinking. So different than Jesus, the spirit-filled servant leader. Our love has to be sacrificial. That's what we're called to, husbands. And it goes on. It also has to be a sanctifying love. Paul goes on as he begins to describe what this love of Jesus looks like. He gave himself up so that he could sanctify the church, his bride. What does sancti sanctifying mean? It's not this Christian word. It means holy. If you just looked at the definition, set apart. 
But I think if you look at Scripture, there's a little different way to say it, okay? Uh, it is holy, uh, and it is set apart, but to be set back. You catch that? To be set back as we were created to be. Because there was a time on this earth that humans were holy. When was that? In the garden. Before sin. So sanctification is, is, is making something holy. Set it apart. Setting it back to as it was meant to be. And it talks about Jesus' work to do that. In verses 26 and 27. Right? He says he has cleansed her with the washing of water, the word. Okay, what that means is this. It's Jesus' truth, his promises, all his work poured in to redeem us, clean us of sin and death. So he washes with the word so that that we'd be presented, he says. That he could present to himself in splendor. I love that. Do you see that? In splendor. Without spot or wrinkle, it says. What does that mean? Well, spot is something, it's death from the outside. It's sin. It's the world polluting. And what Jesus says, he goes to the cross, he dies, he sheds his blood so that sin cannot have any victory over us. We are free from it because of what he does. So we're without spot. Without wrinkle too. What is that? Well, when do you wrinkle? As you get close to death, right? But he promises something, that he goes to the cross and then goes to the grave and has victory over death. And we get to walk in new life. It's what our baptisms are, right? It's celebrating that we have new life. There is no aged wrinkle. We are beautiful brides because what he did on the cross in the grave and then, then we can be holy, it says, without blemish. Everything that he created us to be, we get to be because of his work. Woo, it's good stuff, isn't it? So husbands, they're like, oh, what do I do in this, right? <laughs> well, listen, you're not God, you're not Jesus, so relax a little bit, okay? Um, you need to do your part because Jesus is doing his part in your wife's life. And he entrusts you to do your part. Not to be God, not to be Jesus, but to do your part. To be a resource, an instrument for him. To make her holy without blemish. And so he has gifted you, right? And he wants you to take those gifts and pour into her. He's taken her, he's put her on the pillow right next to you. You're going to spend the most time with her than anyone else in the world. He says, okay, I want you to disciple her, pour into her, help her grow to spiritual maturity. Do your part. Right? Use your gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to build her up. Right? For example, so if you, your gift out to be encouraging, great, encourage her. Maybe your gift is teaching. Okay, great, teach her. Maybe you don't have the gift to teach. You don't have to teach her. There's some homes that the wife knows way more scripture and understanding that. Great, that must not be your primary role. Doesn't mean you can't talk about the word and all that, but you get it. You do what God has gifted you to do. Do your part, right? To build her up and free her up to use her gifts to be everything God has her to be. One of my great joys in life and something that's a, it's a personal mission for me um, is 
to do everything that I can, that God has equipped me to do, to partner with Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help Sandy, my wife, be everything God has her to be. I pray there will be a day uh, that I'll get there in judgment. He'll, he'll, he'll show me Sandy um, and he'll say, look at my daughter. You're a great son-in-law. Uh, thank you for doing your part. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, she is shining. That's my goal. That's our role as a husband, uh, is to be part of Jesus sanctifying them. And the last thing here is that this love is to be a satisfying love. See, marriage, marriage should be full of joy. Because I say that, I didn't say happiness, okay? Because marriage is a challenge, it's difficult. Joy is something different. Joy is something that comes from within your own heart. No one can give you joy. It comes from a deep contentment, a shalom, a peace with God. Uh, and then it overflows. Does sometimes joyful have an expression? Yes, it does. And it would most often look like happiness. But not always. Sometimes people are content and full of joy in the worst of circumstances. Right? So marriage, promise it's going to be difficult, but it's supposed to be joyful. So how do we have a satisfying marriage that is joyful? If you look at verse uh, 28 on to the end of this section, verse 32 there, you start seeing something spoken of, and that is this. It is um, oneness. That we are to be one flesh, right? Uh, uh, love your wife as your own body. This whole oneness thing, it's coming out of the book of Genesis. Genesis, this oneness. So we need to love our wife in oneness. And one flesh means this. It, it, it means it's physical, uh, emotional, and spiritual connection at such a deep level that you're one. Okay, and when you are one and loving in that way and understanding that uh, your role is to connect at that level, what happens is you understand everything you do to one, you do to the other. Okay, so the point here, right, is this is when you come into your house. Okay, let's do this. And let's use anger. And you're mad. What happens to your house? It gets unstable, doesn't it? Right? Because what you're doing here goes there. The same as in the positive. You come in full of joy and you just, God just did great things and you're worshiping, you're celebrating Jesus. What happens to your home? It gets filled the same way. So husbands and wives, whatever you do, to yourself, you're doing to the other when you're living in oneness. And that's what I'm talking about. We gotta love in oneness and understand that. So he says what you're doing is you're gonna nourish and cherish. Nourish is this, it's just feeding it. Feeding it healthy things so they can grow and be strong and healthy to achieve everything it's intended to be. And I'm gonna tell you the greatest way you can nourish is this, live out your faith, husbands. One of the most powerful things Live it out. Before you say anything, all that stuff, have her look across you and say, that man loves Jesus. That man is sacrificial loving me. That is my partner. He's in battle with me. He's invited me to battle. When you do that, okay, it's just gonna happen. You will see her grow and be nourished and fed and then lastly, cherished and cared for. You go back to Adam and Eve. What happened when God brought Eve to Adam? You know, he, he broke out in Hebrew poetry, right? Uh, he says, wow, God. Uh, and he cherished that. 
Because listen, when you cherish something, you care for it. So we have to receive our wives as a precious gift from Almighty God. And when we do that, and we treat her like the precious gem that she is, gifted to us, entrusted to us, she will shine. She will shine. So you have to be grateful, thankful, and cherish this gift God gave you. If you look at verse um, 29 and 30, I think it's 30 actually, 31, um, what Jesus does is he ends this whole thing. He's looking at all this. He says, I want to tell you a profound mystery. How are you going to do it? Remember, remember this. Uh, this profound mystery is how I love my body, that I'm one with, that's you and I. We're his body. And I nourish it. I feed it. I cherish it. So love that way. Love that way, church. And so we have to be reminded as we're looking at marriage and all these things that Jesus is the example. The Holy Spirit will empower you. And we talked about a lot of things, you know, and you say, what do I do next? Just surrender to the Holy Spirit. Surrender to Jesus Christ, right? When you do that, this great mystery, this profound thing will happen. And guess what he gets from it? A witness. Everywhere you go, people walk into your home, they'll see your marriage and say, what is that? Why is, why is, why is that so good? Guess what you get to do? It's not me. It's Jesus. Seeing the Jesus in me, right? That's what it is. So I'm gonna invite Peggy to come up uh, and just share some closing thoughts as the band comes up and, and we sing. Peggy, just kind of give us a, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that um, Paul set, a, he set out this ideal pattern and it's something, a goal that we wanna shoot for. I mean, we want, we really wanna have, we have to have something to aim for when we're trying to work out this life. And without a goal, then we, we're just wandering. But none of this is possible without the inside help of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know how people do this if they don't have Jesus in them. And so if, if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, everything is so much harder because it's the Holy Spirit who directs us and shows us and makes it even possible for me to consider what Paul has laid out for us to do. So it starts there. That's good, it's good, yeah, just to echo that. If you want the marriage that God has for you, he says, I'm gonna show you a picture of that in Jesus Christ. You want that life that Jesus has for you, you have to have Jesus' life in you. By faith, you're gonna say, I receive your gift, a forgiveness of sin, okay? Come in, adopt me, restore me. I say yes to you in faith, save me. When that happens, the Holy Spirit comes in, the promised Holy Spirit, and God will begin to work. And then your job is to continue to surrender to God and what he's doing. And you'll see the life of God in your marriage. But here's one thing. Make sure you grab this. Marriage isn't the only purple. Husband and wife are, only, are not the only people that represent what Christ does to his bride. Singles are too. When you are faithful to God, when they see God in you, guess what? That reflects who Jesus is. So it's all of us called to build our lives on Jesus, married or single. It has to start there. I'm going to tell you something. Um, if it doesn't, it'll be a mess. It'll be a fight. 
Because only Jesus brings a soul-level peace to all the journeys we have, and that is included marriage, being single, every aspect. And I want to invite, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, you haven't surrendered your life to Him, you come talk to me. I'd love to share from Scripture of this beautiful love story of Jesus and you and everything He promises on the other side of that relationship. If you're here and you know Jesus, and there's just some area in your house that's just not in order, give it to Jesus. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. And I know when we talk about marriage, boy, it's like sometimes opening wounds up. You know, I'm going to sing a few words here with you guys, but Peggy and I are going to go back to the prayer room at the back. Feel free to come back for prayer. If you have a question about some of the teaching today, if you have just an issue, you want prayer and encouragement, we want to be there for you. But church, let's build our lives, every aspect, on Jesus' love. Will you stand with me? Let's worship together. Love you, North Shore.